Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Free Alabama Movement is a longtime grassroots organization of Alabama prisoners. FAM made important contributions to the 2016 National Prison Strike and have faced severe repression and violence, but they've continued organizing ever since. FAM has called a strike and economic blackout for the entire month of January in response to guard abuse of inmates. This is part of FAM's statement. Quote, the Alabama prison strike and 30 economic blackout has concluded the first week of the month-long action. Work stoppages have begun to affect several prisons throughout the state, and the Alabama 11 remain on hunger strike. Prison service providers JPay, Access Corrections, Securus, ACI, and Union Supply top the list of the boycott. These actions have prompted violent retaliation by the Alabama Department of Corrections and continues to intensify. The strike and boycott is coordinated by the Free Alabama Movement and supported by a relatively diverse coalition of outside supporters. The failed prison system is set to reach another historic high in preventable deaths due to violence, as well as continue to rank among the nation's leaders in suicides and drug overdose deaths. At the same time, the ADOC's lack of a plan, testing, or effective response to COVID-19 is causing additional deaths." Unquote. We'll have more on this later, but for now, you can find out more information and read the full statement at freealabamamovement.org. This week, we speak with David Pello, Fabiana Lake, and Camber Wilson, three of the authors of a report that was recently released, titled, Environmental Justice Struggles in Prisons and Jails Around the World which is the annual report from the Prison Environmental Justice Project. We'll have a link to the report on our website, but for now, here they are walking us through the issue. My name is David Pello, and I'm a professor of environmental studies at UC Santa Barbara. My name is Fabiana Lake, and I am a fourth year environmental studies major and Latin American and Iberian studies minor at UCSB. I'm Camry Wilson. I'm fourth year at University of California, Santa Barbara as well. I'm just studying environmental studies. We are missing one of our co-authors, Elijah Baker. So this, this report is, is an effort to bring together stories and data and trend lines and cases where we find the intersection of environmental injustices in prisons and jails and immigrant detention centers, concentration camps in the United States and around the world. And we do this by using both contemporary and historical cases and evidence. And we have a, at least one chapter that traces this, this work, these stories back at least as far as chattel slavery and then convict leasing to the present in the United States. I think, you know, there's, there's a growing number of folks with interest in this intersection of prisons and jails and environmental justice. But this, I think it's safe to say, is the first report that really does this on a truly global scale. We feature reports from dozens of nations. I mean, talking, of course, the United States, but we look at Jamaica, Egypt, Cameroon, Zimbabwe, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Israel, China, and so many more countries. But this is also, I think, the first study that really seeks to look at defining, you know, quote unquote, environmental issues and environmental justice issues in prisons from a truly broad perspective. So we look at you know, water contamination, 
air pollution exposure, forced labor and hazardous working conditions, uh, poor nutrition, woefully inadequate medical care, and of course, you know, torture and neglect in these carceral facilities in the U.S. and around the world. And what we document is, is what we reflect, what we call the, uh, the incarceration extraction nexus, those, those links or intersections between the act of taking people out of our communities, extracting people from their neighborhoods, from their homes, from their families, and then caging them where they are you know, subjected to a whole host of abuses. And we combine that with the act of extracting wealth from and poisoning our environment, our ecosystems. And we see a lot of these things coming together in various carceral systems around uh, the world. But we also wanna keep front and center the importance of prisoner resistance throughout. So we focus on hunger strikes, lawsuits, the writings that prisoners are engaging in, protests, uprisings, et cetera. And you know, I think it's no surprise to people who've paid close attention to this issue that prisoners really are leaders in the environmental justice movement, even if they are behind bars. So to put it uh, very bluntly, one of the goals of this project is to really document environmental injustices in prisons with the goal of supporting environmental justice movements and prison abolition. So I'll turn it over to my, my colleagues now. I could talk a little bit more specifically about the chapters that I primarily worked on, which were, yeah. David mentioned, prison labor, and we evaluate different contexts in which prisoners are subjected to uh, vulnerabilities that the public that isn't incarcerated wouldn't. For example, in the context of hurricanes, different prisons were not evacuated, but were expected to work on the cleanup. And even before the hurricane hit, they were made to fill standbags and do precautionary measures for the free people, but they weren't even evacuated themselves. And then Fabiana and I both co-authored a chapter where we looked at different contexts around the world where this is happening, not necessarily prison labor, but where people are facing inadequate food access, inadequate medical care, don't even have access to water, don't have toilets, don't have basic hygiene, and we take that to a context of a pandemic as well. It was just tragic to see how widespread these themes are, you know, just like research in so many different countries highlight the same issues of contaminated water, lack of water, medical neglect, all the things that Cambria and David were mentioning. So that's kind of what the survey chapter covers. And then in two of the chapters I primarily worked on, the first one being the history chapter. In that, uh, we really go into convict leasing, which I think is a system that's really glossed over in looking at slavery and links to the carceral system as well as racism in our country. That's the beginning of the carceral system in the United States and how brutal it is. It's just really interesting to make ties between that era, which was so blatantly terrible and how many things remain the same today. But like, you know, there's, there's like just different little things, things have changed to make it seem like things are better. Like, it, like there's, there are improvements in infrastructure or working conditions a little bit, but still, you know, inmates aren't getting paid for their labor. Or in January in Parchman Prison in Mississippi, inmates were rioting over water being brown, coming out of the tap and being brown, and they were saying they have really high rates of cancer. Their their cells are still getting flooded and they're they're standing in sewage and, and water. And it's just like, it's terrible. And it's just tragic how little our system has changed. <laughs> And then another chapter that I worked on was the second global survey chapter. That's where we really highlighted the extraction incarceration nexus. 
we like focus on the Uyghurs in East Turkmenistan, which is an occupied territory that China claims, and then Tibet as well, same, it's an occupied territory that China claims, and then Palestine. And we discuss how these regions in themselves are prisons in a way. Like the Tibetans, the Uyghurs, and the Palestinians are all locked into a certain like landmass and they're not allowed to leave. And then they're also on top of that incarcerated forced to work, you know, and resources are extracted from those lands. Specifically with the case of the Uyghurs and the Tibetans, in diving deeper into my research, I kept finding that the reasons that these populations are imprisoned at such high rates are because there's lots of like energy resources, specifically in East Turkmenistan. And then in Tibet, there's just different like lithium, water, copper, different resources that are extremely economically lucrative. Um, and so that really contributes to why these populations are incarcerated at such a high rate. So yeah, I thought that was a really interesting thing to highlight and a new way to look at incarceration. Yeah, I also feel like taking this project to look at environmental injustices on a global scale really helped highlight patterns and consistencies of injustices inflicted upon incarcerated people that is inherently linked with a punitive justice system as opposed to like a rehabilitative one. Like human rights aren't prioritized if you are seen as not even as a citizen, if you aren't even seen as deserving three adequate meals a day. I just want to highlight the consistency that it's not just the United States, it's all around the world, whether it's the global south or the global north, and whether it's an affluent country, whether it's not. One case study that we look at is prisons in Zimbabwe and also jails. These facilities are so overcrowded that the president had to grant mass pardons in 2014, 2016, 2018, and 2020 that we know of due to food shortages and global criticism alike. Over 100 people died of malnutrition within these prisons within the first 11 months of 2013. And I feel like that kind of highlights, you know, if they don't have food, do they have water? Do they have medical care? Do they have adequate time outside? Do they have access to mental health resources? Their meals would only consist of one scoop of plain sadza, which is porridge made from any number of pulverized grains or water, and at times pap, which is dough made from cornstarch and water, and they were only serve these meals once a day. Yeah, so in the history chapter, chapter one, I kind of just outline a history of you know, from slavery to comic leasing to now. And a tragic fact that I came across in my research was that in 1898, 73% of Alabama's state revenue was coming from inmates' labor. At that point, they were only spending $45 on bedding. Inmates are a source of labor and a source of profit considering there's only $45 spent on bedding that year, they're just really not taken care of and they're just used, at, they're just exploited to the furthest degree. The, the chapter the, that I wrote on, on water contamination looks at uh, a couple of cases, one of which focuses on immigrant prisons or you know what people have called immigrant detention centers and, and, uh, and the fact that there's water contamination there. And um, it has been reported and, and you know, we got this from, from various media and government sources that the, the Carnes County Civil Detention Center, the, which is the largest immigrant prison in, in the country, is there uh, in, in Texas and in what was called the, the drilling epicenter of the Eagle Forge Shale, which is a massive region that's in, included uh, a bunch of fracking there. And we've seen a lot of well blowouts. We've seen people evacuating. Uh, one study that was done by some folks at, I think it was Northeastern University in Boston, found that some 75% uh, of residents 
in this area, we're reporting major environmental health problems. And then we find that the water inside the prison, inside this immigrant prison, is also apparently contaminated and heavily chlorinated. And the prisoners there, the immigrant prisoners there, are reporting that it smells foul, it tastes foul. And like what we're seeing in these carceral facilities all around the world, people aren't taking this situation passively. They are resisting, you know, there's hunger strikes, there's lawsuits, sit-ins. Um, people are getting messages out to, to family, to attorneys, to, to prison support allies and accomplices. And, you know, it was, I think it was in March of 2015, for example, some almost 80 women at this prison at the Carnes County Residential Center began a hunger strike to not just pr to protest their conditions of confinement, but to really demand their release, to just refuse the legitimacy of this carceral facility altogether and to you know, use what we call an anti-politics, just to simply say, we absolutely refuse to accept the idea that it's legitimate that people should be caged and that it's legitimate that people are, who are in this country without so-called authorization should be treated like criminals and deported. And so they also were engaging in this hunger strike to demand the release of their children. So these were women, and in many cases, mothers. Uh, and most of these folks were from Mexico and other parts of uh, Central America, and the water was contaminated. They were you know, abused verbally and other ways. And what we do in the report is show that they have, you know, allied groups are also really important, groups like the Southwest Workers Union, which is a Texas-based NGO that really organizes grassroots social change movements across multiple intersecting causes like environmental justice, immigrant justice, labor rights, racial and gender justice, and immigrant justice. And that group stood in solidarity uh, with the mujeres, the women who were protesting at this facility. But we also place this, like we do in all of the cases, this particular instance in a broader context. So this is happening in Texas, where the International Energy Agency really forecasts that the growth in U.S. oil production to meet 80% of new global demand for oil in the next several years uh, will be coming largely from places like Texas, from oil produced by hydraulic fracking, uh, uh, fracturing, which of course is extraordinarily violent to our landscapes, to our water sources, and to our flora and fauna, and of course to human beings. And so putting this particular case of the Carnes County uh, immigrant prison in that broader context that we see, we look, we step back and we see these international migrants, these refugees, these asylum seekers, these families and children being separated, being caged, being exposed to a whole host of environmental harms. If water is life, then I think it's safe to say that toxic and poison water is death. And in the context of, frankly, militaristic U.S. foreign policies in Central America and Latin America that have really contributed to the, the growth in refugee flows from, from that era. And of course, combining that with the climate change-induced drought that many folks in that part of the world are fleeing. And so we've got this intersection of all of these practices, right? The oppressive anti-immigrant and nativist and racist policies of the US federal government, our continued and deep commitment to fossil fuel production, and of course, the, the repression, the repression of folks who are allies uh, in this struggle. So these are just some of the cases that we're, we're looking at in this report. And uh, I'd like to just say, I think it's, it's very readable and it's based on a lot of information that we gleaned from government documents, from non-governmental organization reports like Human Rights Watch, 
Amnesty International, uh, the Institute for Middle East Understanding, the Innocence Project, for media reports all around the world. And we've started to incorporate, in some cases, interviews with, with former prisoners. We're going to focus more on that in later reports. Um, but it's also the result of close consultation with prisoner support groups and environmental justice groups as well. One of the, the things that I've been very, very concerned about is backlash and, and repression against folks who are currently incarcerated. And so one of the ways we, we address that in terms of when, when prisoners' voices are being centered throughout this, this study, it is largely coming from prisoners who are already public and have made their, their grievances and their activities and their, their resistance work public. So we felt that that was fair game. And in terms of addressing that, we also, you know, we're interviewing a lot of people who are formerly incarcerated so that they don't face that immediate backlash from, from being behind bars and being at the mercy of corrections officers and, and wardens. So that's one way we do it. And of course, we get a lot of our information, as I said, from, from advocacy groups, prisoner support groups, from, in, in many cases, family members. Just a couple of weeks ago, in a related project that I'm working on, a researcher with, who works with me, one of my colleagues, was asked by a prison in this region, in northern Santa Barbara County, to provide a bunch of documentation uh, in terms of the research project that we were doing. And you know that wasn't looking good, and we knew they were going to pick it apart. And shortly thereafter, they they denied us access entirely. And so that's happened a number of times. And so, frankly, sometimes I get information. We get information from from prisoners that's uh, frankly on the on the QT on the download where I will get an email from somebody who's either incarcerated or a family member with with information that is either encrypted or or, or or recorded with using a contraband telephone. For example, I've got a contraband telephone uh, video of contact, clearly contaminated water from a, a prisoner uh, that was in Southern California, who's now out. But at the time, this prisoner was, was, was incarcerated and sent this through their loved one. And, uh, and I got it that way. So, so we're trying to be very careful to avoid repression uh, and backlash again prisoners. And so for the most part at this time, uh, most of our, our information is coming directly from prisoners who, who are currently serving time. It's coming from folks who are already making their work and their activism public. And it's usually coming from those sources because we've just seen too many instances where people have paid uh, a heavy price for, for speaking up. So I guess the only other thing I would say uh, about all of that is that we do have, you know, an ongoing component of this project where we're doing a much deeper dive into prisoner testimonies. We get some of that in this report, but that's really going to be highlighted in, in the next report. The environmental justice movement has done a pretty darn good job of highlighting how working class, low income, low wealth communities, communities of color, immigrant communities, indigenous communities, communities in the global south, and a whole host of other marginalized populations are just disproportionately affected, disproportionately impacted by environmental harm across the board, you know, toxics, pollution, air, land pollution, water pollution, um, you name it, and in the workplace, in the community, et cetera. What is fascinating to me, though, is, is until very recently, there had been virtually no concerted and sustained attention on 
how the prison environment and jail environments are also sites of environmental justice struggles, despite the fact that, of course, these are environments where people, super vulnerable people, are already made even more vulnerable, or made even more further vulnerable. And um, despite the fact that, you know, any casual examination of what's going on in prisons finds, you know, water contamination, which is probably the, the greatest issue, food contamination, really, really crappy medical care. Um, and oftentimes prisons and jails are located smack dab on top of or right next to, you know, closely in proximity to hazardous waste sites, to flood zones, you name it, and are heavily hit by climate change driven weather events. So it would seem obvious, you know, to, to anybody who's looking at various corners of society across the world that this should be a site of, of, of consideration for the movement and for scholars and for policymakers. But I think precisely because what we've talked about earlier, because these are folks who are not viewed as fully human by so many folks in, in this society and others, that the, 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 the attention, the care and the compassion is just not there. So I think that's the, the first thing. For me, one of the most enduring successes of the environmental justice movement has been to really reframe and redefine what we even mean by the environment. So yes, the environment is the oceans. Yes, it's the forest. Yes, it's you know wild nature and all of that. But what the environmental justice movement has done a really good job of is saying, yeah, it's all of that. And it's also every single place where human beings live, work, learn, pray, and play. It's, you know, it's another way of saying humans are part of our environment and we're inseparable from it. And so we, we can't think of ourselves as separate from and, and certainly superior to nature and non-human relations. And so for me, that's really important because then if all of that is true, if we define the environment in that broad way, then where we live, where we, where we work, where we learn, where we pray, where we play, all of those things happen in, in carceral facilities as well. And so I like to think of expanding that environmental justice definition of the environment uh, to include those places where we also do time. And, and, and prisons are therefore really important for that. For me, it's also important because, and this is a friendly, loving, solidarity-based criticism of the environmental justice movement, but so much of that movement is really focused on trying to make change through the existing system and really relying on a, a vision of environmental justice where the government, where the state is really gonna be the site of resolution, where we're going to rely on the government to solve the problems of environmental injustice and environmental racism, despite the fact that the government is often the primary perpetrator of those harms and those forms of violence. And so for me, conversations that I've heard on Kite Line and in other venues and, and in conversations with prisoners and former prisoners and abolitionists quickly and often goes to much more transformative ways of making change, right? And thinking about abolition, thinking about decarceration, thinking about decriminalization, thinking about not taking for granted this system. And so for me, learning from prisoner rights activists and prisoners themselves and former prisoners and their families, it's a really great way to frankly inject, I think, a really healthy dose of radicalism into the environmental justice movement. Another point is this, um, you know, most people, I think it's fair to say, at least in this country, when you lay out the premise of environmental racism or environmental injustice, right? People are living in neighborhoods that are heavily polluted, disproportionately impacts vulnerable populations, most people, if you really push them, and you don't have to push them in most cases, will likely say that I think that, that if that is true, that there is this intersection between race and class 
and environmental harm, that it's not so much because companies and governments are targeting people. It's because people are doing what people naturally do in a system where there's a great deal of inequality. And that is they're moving into neighborhoods that are already polluted. They're moving into neighborhoods that are already polluted because those neighborhoods are where the cost of living is cheaper, where the rent is lower, where the housing values are lower. And it's just, in a way, it's normal. It's natural. It's almost organic. And that helps people sleep at night, except unfortunately, it's not true. In far more cases, the vast majority of cases, we find that environmental injustice, environmental racism in communities, in rural and urban areas, is a result not of people moving into polluted neighborhoods and communities, but is a result of government and corporate agents actually targeting those communities and polluting those communities above and beyond any sort of threshold they were already at after people have already moved in. So that's hard for a lot of Americans to swallow. Not easy to sleep at night when you begin, begin to realize that the empirical evidence is very clear that our government and corporations are deliberately targeting people because they are the path of least resistance, because they are viewed as having fewer ties to the political and economic elite. Therefore, they don't have the social and human capital to resist and mobilize and overturn these decisions. And frankly, because they occupy social categories that are despised by the elites in this country, people of color, indigenous folks, immigrants, working class white folks, despised by the ruling class. Um, so those are some reasons why I think it's important to connect environmental justice to prisons. And so my, my final point around that issue of targeting communities is that what we call this is the minority move-in hypothesis. This hypothesis that, again, environmental racism is the result of minorities, people of color, moving into polluted communities. We've now determined that that's actually only true in a statistical minority of the cases, vast majority of cases, people are being targeted. Well, let's connect that to the prison system where you basically have little to no choice as to where you're going to reside if you're caught up in the prison system, in the jail system. And so if that's the case and you're being exposed to a whole host of toxins and pollutants, then that whole minority move-in hypothesis that was already proven wrong in neighborhoods is even further wrong, way wronger, uh, and frankly moot in the prison and, and jail system. So, so there's a ton of ways in which environmental injustice and environmental justice politics really, I think, productively intersect with, with the carceral system in this country. The environmental justice movement is about amplifying quieter voices and about bringing equal access to basic necessities to everyone. So I think that awareness of this topic is super important. That's why we all wrote this report. I just think it's so important to shed light on what these people are made to endure on a daily basis because society holds this narrative so tightly that any kind of suffering inflicted upon incarcerated people is deserved or justice in action. But what we are trying to portray with this report is that the vast majority of the time, the severity of the punishment is wildly disproportionate to the crime. I also think that we need to reconsider what our intentions are with the carceral system, because if it is for the betterment of society, we want these people to re return rehabilitated and better than when they came in. We want to treat these people like people, not as free labor, not as victims, not as however they're treated now. We need to reform the system to be more beneficial for everyone. One of the things that we, we do in this report is really try to pull back the veil on conditions in prisons in the United States and around the world that I think reveal things that are going on that are, that are just truly heart-wrenching and stomach-turning 
that I think it's safe to say most people are entirely unaware of. And so one of the other things that we do is to demonstrate, you know, this is where your taxpayer dollars are going. And in other cases, in other chapters, we show this is where your actual dollars are going in terms of products that you're consuming. Consumerism, of course, is something about two thirds of the US economy, at least pre-COVID it was. And so this economy is built on a house of cards and a house of violence and brutality that is linked to the prison system, not only in the United States, but around the world. So we talk about a whole host of common consumer products that are, that are being produced in prisons and jails in the US and around the world and offer resources for people to, to take action. And so the last thing I would say is, yeah, if you wanna find out more about the, the work we're doing, check out the Global Environmental Justice Project at University of California, Santa Barbara. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.